Hello and welcome to the Irish History Show. If you'd like to listen to this or previous episodes of the show, please go to our website, irishhistoryshow.ie. Or if you'd like to follow us on Twitter, we're at Irish History Pod. You can also follow us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. Now, on this episode, we're very pleased to be joined by Dr. Porrick Lenahan. Dr. Porrick Lenahan lectures in NUI Galway, and he's an expert in early modern Irish history. And also, what we're going to be talking about today, siege warfare in the 17th century in Ireland. Hi, Podrick. Uh, John here. John, how are you? Good. Thanks for joining us, Podrick. Podrick, I have a great quote from one of your books here from a 17th century writer, I think. We make war more like foxes than lions, and you will have 20 sieges for one battle. Why was that true back in the, in the 17th century, in Europe in general, and in Ireland in particular? If I could begin with the pre-gunpowder siege, if you like, for want of a better word, a medieval siege. Before you have gunpowder, a siege is literally, I mean, the French word, it comes from the French word, sitting down, a siege. An army sits down in front of a castle, and it waits, and it waits, and it waits. So the medieval castle is strong because it is high. The walls are thin, but the walls are high. It's to deter somebody climbing over it, or if you want your fancy, if you want a term of art, is to deter Escalade. Now that changes radically with the invention of gunpowder. That's a game changer. We see most notably the fall of the, the Roman Empire, the fall of Constantinople in 1453. It succumbs at walls that had survived for a millennium, at this day, longer than a millennium at this stage, have succumbed to gunpowder. So it really does change. We see it in the 1530s in Ireland with the, with the capture of Minute by Lord Deputy Skeffington. So gunpowder changes everything, or does it? In the medium term, defenders respond to this challenge by making a new kind of fortification. Instead of having high tin walls, you've got low, thick ramparts or walls, ramparts, earth, rubble, stone, stone facing. The problem with doing that is that if you've got a thick wall, you can't look over it. There are blind spots. So you have to have other portions of the fortification sticking out or projecting called bastions so that people on other parts of the wall can see your part of the wall and you can see theirs. So it's a mutually interlocking fields of fire. That means by the 17th century, the balance of strength has come back again to the defender. So it takes an awful long time to settle down, to actually capture a town. I mean, an example from Western Europe would be the Spanish siege of Ostend in the about halfway through their 80 years war. That took from 1601 to 1604. The Spanish won. And if you could see me, I'm putting inverted commas around the, the, the one. The one, but it was a perilous victory. My favourite for long longevity is the siege of a place called, what was called Candia or Heraklion in Crete, held by the Venetians, besieged by the Ottomans. And that lasted from 1648 to 1669. Now that's, that's a siege. So the balance, if you like, is with the defender. Now, in the 17th century, the second half, that changes again. So I'm getting there, John. I'm getting to why the, the Irish siege, what is happening against this backdrop. The changes, the changes from the 
long siege to a, something that is much quicker. Why are besiegers able to do what they need to do so much more quickly? They deploy more men. The, the French, when they're taking Namur in 1692, Namur is a city in the what we now call Wallonia or Walloon, French-speaking Belgium. They have six times as many people attacking as are defending. So you look, you use an awful lot more men, you use an awful lot more firepower. Classically, by the time of the War of the Spanish Succession, the first decade and a half of the 18th century, besiegers have 300 guns and mortars. So you're looking at more guns, more mortars, and different kinds of firepower. Instead of just looking at the gun, which is following a solid shot, which knocks a hole in the wall makes what we call a breach. You have different kinds of artillery. You have artillery firing ricochet fire on a half charge and a high elevation, which kind of bounces around inside in the ramparts. You have mortars, which instead of firing, they fire a thing called a bomb or a bombshell, a hollow sphere filled with shrapnel, filled with explosives that it's an anti-personnel weapon. So you've got different kinds of weapons. You've got more firepower. You've got more men. And above all, you've got system. And it's a system we need to understand. We associate this with a man called Vauban. Now, Vauban was Louis XIV's siege master and the engineer. And he systematizes the process of a siege in form. Your problem is... If you've got a wall, you've got a, an enemy fortification, is getting your guns close enough to the wall or the rampart to knock a gap in it. And you can't obviously drag them out, drag them across open ground. So you do is you burrow along under the ground. You dig trenches. And you dig trenches in zigzags or dog legs because you don't want to be subject to infilet fire. You drive these trenches forward. A number of them, one or more. You connect them by parallels and you do so systematically until you get the trenches right up to the edge of the enemy fortifications. And classically, by this stage, the edge of the enemy fortification will be working from the outside in. You've got an open fire swept zone, glasses sloping. You've got a palisade, palings. You've got a breastwork, um, a chest high depression. Behind that, you've got a walkway. Behind that, you've got a ditch. Behind that, you've got a rampart. Behind that, you've got another walkway. Behind that, you've got a wall. You've got multiple le le levels. So you would touch the outer layer of the, the, the toughened outer skin, which is often called the covered way. So you bring your trenches right up to that, to within the distance that a man, a grenadier, and this is a new kind of siege, he that's his job he's he's associated with sieges primarily the grenadier uh lobs a grenade it's a new and a relatively new invention which is a small i suppose a reduced mortar bomb it's a hollow shell packed with explosives and, and nasty stuff bits of shrapnel he throws this over the palisades or what's left of it charges through them and they will capture make a little fort or lodgment as it's called on the covered way and that should be that by this stage the old idea of knocking a hole in the in, in the walls or a breach in the ramparts it's going out because nobody wants that to happen the defenders if it comes to that and if the enemy troops pour, make a breach and if they pour into it the danger is they're going to run amok you're going to have a magdeburg or a drahada or something like that on your hands 
you need to avoid that and the defender needs to recognize okay these guys have established themselves on the covered way the next step they can knock a hole in the breach or knock a breach rather in the ramparts do i need to wait for that to happen or should i capitulate now so it's almost like a theatrical performance it's got its opening act its entre-act, its act one act two act three and both parties are operating off the same script to answer your question at last, why are sieges so important compared to battles? Some would argue it's because armies tend to be tend to be a little battle shy, and it's to, 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 oh, and partly to do with the the nature of war. Certainly in Europe, Western Europe, they're not total wars. They're not wars in which a state is setting out to destroy usually another state. They're wars in which they're trying to nibble away a bit of territory at the expense of their neighbours. You bite that territory, you hold it by putting fortifications on it, they try and get it back to you. You're not primarily interested in taking the risk of facing the enemy main field army because, well, you could lose. Whereas siege is a much more methodical, predictable way of fighting. So the siege is important for that respect but above all sieges are important because towns and cities are very important but well, yeah thanks for yeah thanks for getting out to that Padre, because that was my that was my exact next question just on that i mean how is a town organized at this period of time because it's it's pretty well organized in europe as town or city right yes i mean towns and cities you see europe well, let's get in context i suppose first of all europe is overwhelmingly rural even the most urbanized part of Europe, the low countries or Lombardy, for example, they're still predominantly rural. But nonetheless, so towns and cities are, they're important because they're centers of wealth, of what you might call liquid wealth, of cash. Trading goes on there, the exchange of goods. If you're waging war or you're raising taxes, towns are the wealth generators. Whereas trying to extract money from the countryside from farmers then and now is very very is very very difficult towns are, are centers of wealth their center of manufacture uh, they, they dominate their hinterland and they occupy strategically important places almost by definition towns are they are in places that armies want to be they occupy bridges river crossings ports prosperous hinterlands so they, they occupy strategic ground now these towns in europe traditionally are set apart from the countryside if you take the feudal countryside there's a, a, a german saying um stad luft max free and the stad is a city the luft is the air mac makes and free is free in other words a surf who escapes from the countryside, if he makes it to or she makes it to the town, they are free. This town is separate from, uh, they strive to be separate from the, 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 the jurisdictionally from the countryside. They run themselves. And if you take the English and by extension Irish example, a town or borough will have its founding charter. It'll have a mayor. It'll have a common council. It will have a franchise 
more or less wide or narrow. I mean, most of these common councils can be controlled by a very small number, a small clique of families, the so-called tribes in Galway. I mean, if you take the Irish example, you've got your Frenches and your Lynches and your Bodkins and your Carowins in Galway, but you also have their equivalents in Limerick, your Arthurs and your Roaches. But you know, you know what I mean. So you got self-replicating mercantile elites. They're separate from the countryside. They tend to look more towards Dublin Castle and towards London rather than the countryside. So they're more English in that sense. They're little jurisdictional islands of themselves. They're a war. They're a kind of a a world set apart. Their own mayor, their own government, their own liberties. They're responsible for their own taxes. They, they raise money by charging, for example, if I want to cross the bridge of Athlone. That's the money raiser there. Sydney's bridge built in the 1570s. Well, I have to pay a toll on the bridge. And that goes to to, to the municipal government. Well, it actually doesn't in the case of Athlone. It goes into the pocket of the, the Hancocks. But anyway, so the town is set apart. And the visual, if you like, expression of that apartness is the town walls and almost by definition all of these towns have a circuit of of walls and those walls you can't say the bigger the town footprint the bigger the town's population some towns have very large footprints with walls that encompass quite a lot of empty space or gardens others are tighter but they all have walls. Well, as you mentioned there, Porrick, with the walls and some of them are bigger or smaller, there must be something that they must have to take into account that if there is warfare on the town, they will have to take in some of the town's residents that live outside the city walls or the town walls. That is uh, an intriguing question, all right. Usually in the context of a siege, you're going to have refugees from the surrounding hinterland taking shelter within the wall, within the walls. I'll give you the example of Derry, 1689, the siege of Derry. That was a long one, April, May, June, into uh, July, July 25th, 1689. There are certainly in excess of 20,000 people inside in that town during the siege. That's between militiamen, locally raised troops, women and children. Now, there are not 20,000 inhabitants of that town, and it's still very much a town. I am, I would hesitate. I'm going to stick my neck out there and say there's probably maybe a quarter of that population, uh, less, even one-fifth one of that, uh, would be the, the normal pre-war population. So they are expanding. But you ask the question, are, do they allow for it? Well, they don't, you see. This is the problem. The problem is you've got towns that are if the siege goes on a long time, that are grossly overcrowded. So the normal, the pro- what sort of problems then do you arise? You you arise, you, you come up with problems of physical shelter from the elements, water supply, clean water supply. And that's going to be difficult because so many people are using, how do I put this delicately, Septic tanks and privy pits and whatnot can be overused or overflow, contaminate the water supply. So that's a problem. So to answer your question, they don't actually um, allow for the presence of a large number of refugees coming in from the countryside. Not only from the countryside, I forgot to mention, but from the suburbs. 
every town has an area of suburbs. It's outside the herbs or beyond the walls. And the first thing, siege work 101, first thing you do if you're threatened with a siege is you knock down the suburbs because you don't want the enemy to be close to the walls. You want to have open ground outside the walls. So all the people who are living in the suburbs, they also have to take shelter. And if you take the example I'm familiar with Galway, where I am speaking from, the suburbs on every side, on the landward side, what I think of as the, the eastern side of the Corrib, those suburbs are at least as big. They're bigger than the area of the town proper. So if you like, the population of Galway or any of these towns would double just with its own suburban population, not to mention the, the people coming in from the countryside. And uh, there's even cases, Patrick, isn't there, in besiegers where useless eaters are, are expelled from the town and then the besiegers drive them back in? Oh, yes. In the case of the siege for most of the period we're looking at, and I, I'll be giving you specific examples in a minute, but the siege that involves a prolonged starving or blockade, starving out or blockade of the defenders. A lot of sieges end up that way. And in that case, the more people that are stuck inside the city, the better, uh, because the quicker they will, the defenders will eat through their provisions. So you want, if you're an attacker, you want them to keep their so-called useless mouths with them in the town. That's to say women and children and non-competents. And naturally they will try and expel their useless mouths, particularly if they're people who are not from the town, if they're people who've come in from from the countryside. Will you try and push them out? And you as an uh, as a besieger will try and stop that. So a good example would be the 1650-51 siege of Limerick or the 1651 siege, rather, the second one, where it's a sad story. I mean, a man and his daughter um, escape from the town and they're captured by the English and Ireton. He hangs them and he hangs, and he, even though the, the, the man in question says, look, hang me and let, let my daughter back into, into the town. And he hangs them because he wants to discourage others from leaving the town. Um, an example of the opposite behaviour, and again, it was considered foolishly indulgent at the time, is at the Siege of Derry, where Richard Hamilton, who's operating the Jacobite blockade or Siege of Derry, he lets quite a number of people who had fled into the city from the hinterland of Raffo and the Lagan, he lets them back home again. It gives them, it wants to give a written undertaking that they'll behave themselves. And um, that's considered by his critics to be ridiculously, naively, indulgent and um so the, the so yes the question of who's how many people are in the town is of vital interest to a besieger i suppose work we should put in context as well when we're dealing with ireland in the 17th century the amount of warfare that goes on and the amount of civilians that are killed it's, it's really shocking when you're looking back um well ireland's 17th century you're, you're looking at the aftershocks of the Nine Years' War, which ends in 1603. You're looking at the absolutely catastrophic 1641-1653 war. Do you call it the Confederate and Cromwellian Wars uh, or the Wars of Religion? We're not even quite sure what to call it. And then there's the 1689-91 shorter, quite large-scale war 
um, the Williamite or Jacobite Wars or the, the Kogondari or the Kogondari, however you call it, those are wars that are enormously, certainly the middle one is very destructive. Both of them, they, and, and the Nine Years' War. The latter part of the Nine Years' War sees the Tudor forces using, because they can't get to grips with the Irish, they can't get to grips with Tyrone's, with O'Neill's army. So what they do is they destroy the crops, the animals, the peasants, that would shelter them and feed them, the villages that would that would shelter them, and they wage war indirectly against Tyrone, against his base. And that's by by waging war, we, we that's what they kill. I mean, Chichester, who's no softy himself, he talks about coming back from an expedition across Loch Ney, and he's killed so many churls that he's what's the word he puts? He, he puts it that he's almost weary of it. Likewise, in the latter part of the the Cromwellian conquest, let's say the 1650, 51, 52 into 53, those last years are enormously costly on the civilian population, precisely for that reason, that the Irish or the Royalists aren't able to put armies into the field to fight the Cromwellians in the open. So they resort to guerrilla warfare. And the counterinsurgency response to guerrilla warfare is to destroy the people who feed the guerrillas. And by that, again, we're back to the same stratagem. And sadly, in both cases, that stratagem works very well in the long run and at enormous cost. The Jacobite or Williamite War is not as costly. Yes, there are rapparees. Yes, there is guerrilla activity, but it doesn't last as long. And the war, the war is wrapped up with the Treaty of Limerick much more quickly. Then when you're looking at 1689-1991, you're really looking at only three years of full-scale warfare. Uh, Byrick, we're going to talk about specific examples of sieges, but before we do, I want to talk about a sadly topical uh, aspect of this siege warfare, which is disease. And how does disease impinge on siege warfare in this period? It impinges on both besiegers and besieged, because if a besieger is waiting, he is going to be in a camp, He's going to have problems with water supply. He doesn't even have, he has houses or bodies or, or huts. So he's going to be stuck shelter, water supply, sewerage. I seem to be obsessed with that. But that's, that's a constant problem. And within the towns, you're going to have overcrowding. You're going to have more, they're going to, the town is going to have more of an infrastructure in the sense of it has houses with roofs on them. It at least has that. It has some rudimentary procedure for sanitation and rules governing it. How does disease arise then? Basically, disposal of sewerage and animal manure and horses, horse manure and, and so on. It doesn't happen. So if it, it maybe at the most you're going to get are dung pits or manure pits or not, not pits, but heaps. They attract flies in huge numbers, any account of sieges, and particularly in everywhere. We literally talk, they use the analogy of clouds. You talk about men lying in hospital sick and there's almost a moving mask of flies on their face. There's so many there. Those flies are going, and you can imagine all the bristles and hairs on a fly. So it's in the manure pit or on the manure heap and it then goes and alights on your bit of grub. And 
very persistently will do so. So there's an immediate transmission of disease via that vector. That's one disease. So in very, invariably, soldiers and civilians suffer from what's called flux, a diarrhea. Now, that can be bloody flux. That's to say flux with blood in it or something like dysentery. That's the common or garden sickness. It can also be caused by water. And it's impossible to tell the difference between, at this stage, you know, typhoid fever and bloody flux because the, the symptoms, they, they all, they both have fever. The symptoms, even though the causes are different, the, the symptoms are the same. In the case of contaminated water, you know, it, that's going to be another vector. So people are sick with a disease that is of itself not invariably fatal. I mean, you're looking at, we know how difficult it is nowadays to, to calculate mortality rates uh, for the, the present epidemic. Can you imagine how difficult it was, uh, our difficulties in the past? But if you would say 10, 15% of people afflicted by flux or bloody, and bloody flux particularly are going to die. The significance of that is that while they are sick, they can then, particularly in, in cold, as weather, weather turns to autumn, they can pick up another disease, which is a really big killer, which is typhus. Now, typhus is a disease wherever you have the cold, the poor, the hungry, the, mal the, the, the undernourished, the demoralized, the huddled together for warmth, where basically normal standards of self-care break down. With typhus, that person becomes, in the context of close confines, the louse moves from the person who is either, if the person gets a high fever or if they die, the louse moves from that person to somebody with a more a temperature that they prefer. And they live in people's clothing, in the, not in the bodies as such, and they move from person to person. So if you've got the close, con the close contact of a tent, a hut, a hospital, where people who are laid low with sickness, then typhus, or as it's often called, camp fever, jail fever, ship fever, workhouse fever. You can see the various carceral or constrained contexts. Typhus is another disease that we associate with the early modern siege. The typhus, certainly in excess of 50%, maybe more of people who have typhus die. So that's it's it's much deadlier than flux in that sense. Not as deadly as plague, but fortunately for all of the period under review, plague is generally retreating. I think the last episode of plague in Ireland is in 1650. Galway 1649, Dublin and everywhere else 1650. That's it. In London, it's what the plague of is it 1665 or 1664? 1666 or 65, the, 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 the Great Plague. So it recedes. So we're looking mainly at fever, as it's called, typhus, or we'll call it camp fever and bloody flux. I'm thinking of very prominent victims of, of disease during sieges, like Henry Ireton, the parliamentarian commander, would be the probably the most prominent, I think. Yeah, what did Ireton get? The assumption, Ireton was at the siege of Limerick. That's the 1651 siege. 
And that's a good example of one of these really long drawn out. There had been an attempt at siege in 1650. He had to break up that and he came back the following year. So from June to October 1651, his army, he's got 20,000 plus men. They're sitting down. They've surrounded the County Clare side of Limerick and the County Limerick side. And they're sitting down and basically they're waiting till these guys surrender. And what probably causes the surrender of the Irish is disease. Now, it's assumed, it's usually said that, that this was bubonic plague and that Ireton himself may have contracted it. I think it wasn't bubonic plague. I don't think it was because I think they, the, diff, the problem is that the term, it can be confused with typhus. And I think what's happening in, 50, in 51, 52, and in the following years is actually typhus fever, our old friend. And that's probably what Ireton contracted as well, because it's no respecter of conditions within, it's as likely to break out in a siege camp as it is to break out in a besieged town. So that's probably the fever which did for Ireton. He died some days after the surrender or the capitulation of the city. Porica, you'll have to indulge me a little bit here because I'm gonna I'm gonna impose my uh, my my themes onto it rather than go kind of chronologically. If that's okay, that's fine. That's fine, John. Yeah, I do my best to keep up with you. All right. So I'm gonna ask some, as I said, some thematic kind of questions. So like the first one is the kind of sieges which are very short and sharp and are basically assaults. Can can you give us a couple of examples of, of this, Porik? I can give you three examples. And those are three examples, two of which worked and one of which didn't work. Uh, we'll take the classic one, of course, would be September 1649 and Drogheda. Drogheda hadn't been upgraded. It had old-fashioned medieval defences. Cromwell has 48-pounder siege guns. He knocks a breach in the southern part of the... Drogheda is a town of two parts. There's a smaller part on the south of the Boyne and a larger part on the north. He attacks the southern part. He doesn't, he doesn't cut off the town. It's still open on the uh, north of the Boyne to all appearances. He attacks the southern part, knocks a hole in the, in the wall, sends his troops through the breach. I said a hole, a breach. When I talk about a breach, what do I mean? If you could imagine solid shot hitting a wall, what happens? Yes, they make a gap in the wall. They also make a ramp of rubble going through the going through that gap. So we're looking at we talk about people climbing through a breach or over a breach. They're maybe climbing, maybe walking, but more often they're going one hand on the ground, one hand catching a weapon, and they're pulling. So that's what we mean by entering a breach. He sends his troops through the breach the first time. They're beaten back with loss. He sends them through the second time and the Irish are beaten back and they crack. And some of them flee to a nearby, the, the, the Millmount. Others flee across the bridge. They don't knock down or defend the bridge over the Boyne and the Cromwellians pursue them. That is a good example of Cromwell's favoured siege tactic, which is set up your guns, knock a breach, send your boys in, end of. It's short, short and sharp. He tries the same thing in Clonmel, that would be 16, in 1650, the following year, April to May 1650. 
bring up the guns, knock a hole, knock a breach in the in this case in the northern part of the walls, and he does so. But the defender Hudo O'Neill builds what's called a retrograde. Now, I what I think has happened there, and I was looking at it in some detail, is that where he makes the gap opens out onto a street, and that street itself becomes a long laneway at the end of which O'Neill has has put artillery pieces. So as the attackers come into that breach, which is blocked off, the streets and the houses are blocked off on, on the sides. There are men behind parapets firing down into the breach. As they come in into that killing pound, they're cut down. More come in, they're cut down. More come in, they're cut down. I keep saying that. The idea was that they would go in and open up the main gate. Cromwell is waiting with the main, the main body at the main gate, and he's waiting and waiting. Eventually, his, the troops pull back. A second wave is sent in. The same thing happens again. So that kind of short, sharp attack sometimes works. When it works, it works very well. When it doesn't work, as in this case, it's probably the, it's the, the heaviest losses he suffered in any encounter in England, Ireland or Scotland throughout his entire military career. Now, it's not a disaster in the sense of Clanmel does surrender some days after that assault. O'Neill has run out of gunpowder. So in that sense, it's a, it's a qualified, it's a costly success, but it's a win. And my final example is, of course, Limerick in 1690. And that famously was, it's, it culminates in that kind of an assault. That was not as crudely done as Cromwell's. There was some element of the siege in form, making trenches, making, setting up batteries, the siege of Limerick involves, that culminates in an assault through a breach in the Irish town. A narrow breach, maybe about 12 yards wide, and it's too narrow. It's too narrow because previously Patrick Sarsfield had blown up a lot of the gunpowder and they, that, that they needed to make, make a proper breach. But William sends his people into the breach and the French governor, Boiselot, has built what he calls a retirade, which is again the same kind of thing that O'Neill built at Clonmel, which is an interior, a retrenchment. You're familiar with the Minister's Finance tell us to retrench. By retrench, we mean we're cutting back. And the original term of that is you've got a series of tranches or cuttings, and you, you build trenches, as it were, behind the trenches. You retrench. And that's what a retrenchment or a retirade was. And again, Boisolo has that area covered with three guns, heavy guns. One of them is a 32 pounder, loaded with chain and case shot. And the attackers, or the leading elements, come into the pound and they're, they're flittered. They, 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 well, they very nearly got through it because as it happens, the Irish troops occupying it ran away, but another another group happened to be nearby. It's a long story. But again, it's an example of the fairly unprepared and picturesque assault that is turns out to be very costly. That day, William lost, I said, between dead and mortally wounded, one and a half thousand men. So that's the heaviest loss in action he suffered during the entire war. Now, the heaviest losses overall would have happened through, the, through disease at Dundalk. But that, as, as it was, is another story. Yes, no, I, I really about Clonmel. It's such a fascinating battle. 
And one of the things that I th- think is interesting is that if you are in a town like Kelmel in a warfare situation like this, what is the psychological effect on the people within the town? If they have heard of other towns falling, if they've heard of atrocities, what's the the impact or the pressure to capitulate before the battle even begins? There's always tension, call between the civilians and the military. There, uh, the, almost invariably, usually the civilians and the people, the influential, the property owners, the merchants, the members of the corporation, the, uh, the common councils, they will put pressure on the military governor to capitulate. And by capitulating, we mean not surrendering, but making, arranging some sort of deal with the besieger, whereby, you see, the civilians don't want the whole thing to end. They don't want the person, the military governor, to fight to the bitter end because they will pay the price for the bitter end. It could be in in the form of a storm or the longer the siege goes on, the less inclined the attacker will be to make you um, attractive concessions. So, for example, Limerick eventually surrenders or capitulates when it surrenders in October 1651 because O'Neill is not prepared to surrender. The, the citizens of Limerick want to surrender, or most of them. Now, there are some, the mayor and the bishop of, the local bishop of, of, of Emily and a few others are, if you like, hardliners, but most of the civilians want to surrender. And one of O'Neill's people, a guy called Captain Edmund Fennell, seizes a gate and occupies it with his own troops and says to O'Neill, you better talk to these people or else I'm going to let them in. So, yes, that tension exists. And yet the governor can't fall out with the civilians because he needs them for supplies. He needs their goodwill. He needs them for reinforcements. He needs them for everything. So they're they're gone. Like O'Neill had defended Clonmel, but he moved on. And now he's defending Limerick. And if he loses that, he if and when, he'll move on somewhere else. But the civilians are stuck. So usually Galway would be a good example. In Galway, the civilians win in the sense that they get in late 16 may 1652 they get a very good deal from charles coote who promises them their free exercise of their religion and that they can keep their property in the town which had it been observed would have been a very good deal but the english parliament pulls the coote had no authority to make that arrangement argument so that having got the town to say that the coot had no authority to make these concessions on their behalf and they don't observe them so there are tensions uh, to come back to your point civilians they're fearful they want this to be over but they, they they want at the same time to extract some sort of guarantees or some sort of promises nobody's guarantees but some sort of promises as to their lives their property and maybe even their religious and political rights and in limerick in 1690 which you, you've talked about project uh, king william's failed assault on on the walls of limerick uh, famously the town's men and women came out to, to help the the combatants and and, and threw uh, missiles at the at the assaulting troops i hate I, I hate as a historian being the person who's puncturing the balloon of of folklore i'd say, I'd say that much I often wondered for years, where did this story of 
the women being on the walls. But in fact, I've, I did find there are two contemporary references to women folk on the walls. One from a man called Lawrence White. He wrote a Latin poem of the siege and another, I think, story talks about it as well, Reverend George Story. The Governor Bozolo had more troops than he had weapons. Most of his troops, many of them had lost their weapons at the Battle of the Boyne. So he has lots of his troops along the wall with piles of rocks and stones, which are very surprisingly effective weapons if you're 20 feet up, 20 foot up and you throw them down on top of, um, if you can imagine 3,000 men who are jammed elbow to elbow below. It's like people trying to come out after a a crowded football match or something and they're near the gates and they're all they're all jammed together so the women and there's definite evidence of the women folk uh, women being up there on the ramparts with the men i you'll get references to that from from time to time the danger with that is whatever chances if there had been a storm of civilians being recognized as and not you know being accorded some sort of rights and not been slaughtered out of hand if the whole question of the distinction between civilians unarmed civilians and armed soldiers women throwing rocks down on top of you kind of blur that distinction a little bit but yes you're absolutely right there is evidence of the folklore when investigated there is if you like historical evidence for it having happened well that's that's kind of uh that's kind of encouraging there's some truth in it i think i've seen a a, a, a mural in a, a pub in limerick park where showing the women uh, throwing bottles and stuff at the willie my troops yeah well now i'm i'm married to a limerick woman so i'm not going to make any remarks about <laughs> their, 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 their bellicosity or, or whatever but they're 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 strong women we say that much okay well moving on so there's sieges by assault which generally are often don't go that well then there's sieges which are basically attempts to starve a city out can you talk about yes. some examples there well probably the, the the classic example is of course Derry in 1689 and I think Derry is is really pivotal um we use this analogy pivotal do you know what a pivot is John a pivot is like a point at which something moves like a, a seesaw say I see so I just use the use the analogy because I one often thinks about these analogies and you use a phrase like pivotal and if you can imagine a seesaw it's a barrel on the side and you've got the the plank over over it and it's the point of balance the point at which it can go either way and Derry I think is pivotal in that sense in that the entire war James could have, if there hadn't been a siege or had, had been concluded quickly, James was going to land an Irish army in Scotland. There was a significant Scottish Jacobite presence. They had been winning, they'd won at Killicranky, or, or they would win rather later that summer under uh, Bonnie Clavers. That could have transferred the seat of the war onto the island of Britain and very possibly turned the tide of the war against William and his invasion. So Derry is important. What happens? Derry is physically and by nature and by 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 artifice is a very strong and exceptionally strong place. It's got modernized defenses built in the first decades of the 17th century. It's standing on an island and it, originally it was the island of the Derry and the what's, what's now the bog side would have been inaccessible so it's got if you like the foil 
both the estuary and the river on the south, the east and the north, and to the west, you've got the bog of the bog side. So it's on this island. What is Derry in, in, in 1689, April 1689? Basically, all the northern Protestant forces, the settler armies, have been defeated sequentially. They've been defeated in East Ulster, in Mid Ulster, and in West Ulster at the, at the Battle of the Fords, so that they've all been driven, with the exception of the Enniskillen men. The entirety of the civilian, or rather, certainly the, the military and to a great extent the civilians of the plantation are inside those walls. That's it. They're, 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 they're there and the Williamites, or rather the Jacobites, the Irish come and they want the city. They don't have enough guns or big enough guns to knock holes in the walls. So it's about 7,000, all things being taken together, maybe seven, 8,000 Jacobites. There's about as many Williamite soldiers, uh, Ulster so Protestant soldiers within the walls. So it's an unusual siege in that it's very hard for the Jacobites to get onto the island. They do, they do it twice, but they're beaten off again. But equally, it's very hard for the settlers to get off the island. And they do it, they try it twice. And on both occasions, at Pennyburn and later on, they are beaten back. So that it's a stalemate. Once neither side can get at the other. So what the Jacobites do is to just sit down and they wait and wait and wait. They block the foil estuary or the, a part of it, not the, but the, the foil river, the, the narrow part of it, with a boom and with an artillery fortification and guns. And they wait and wait and wait from in April, May, June, well into July. So that's a classic example of starving out the, the civilians. It is famously, I mean, Walker, the, the governor of the city, writes a rather, if you like, self-promoting history of the siege, in which he gives a price list of the various items towards the end of the siege and how there was a rat would cost of X amount and horse meat was this amount. And there was one rather corporate looking citizen who was who fancied that people were looking at him very hungrily and hid for a few days. But the problem with Derry was sickness rather than outright starvation. And the problem again has to do with the constricted, just 20,000 people. Now, if, I, if you know Derry, I wish I, I, I'd taken the trouble to get the actual dimensions, but the walls, Derry has a square or diamond. It has roads going off each of those squares. So you're standing in the diamond and you can look down at the gates, look up uphill a little bit or downhill. You're looking at, I mean, literally, it's not quite a stone's throw, but it's not much more than a stone's throw to each of the gates. So that it's a very small space and you have 20,000 people there and the their water supply is a problem. There are two wells within the, the walls. I've seen, I saw one of them is still, is still there. It's shown... In, near the Bishop's Quarter Gate and, and the hotel there and it's, it's in the, the back of the hotel and the water was described as muddy. The only clean water for the civilians and for the soldiers is actually outside the walls, down, down a hill outside the walls and they have to run out under fire 
get, get, put, get water into the bottle, run back in again. And of course, you'd imagine the Jacobites would have trained their cannon on that spot and would have realized the danger. So that with the, the result that there's a shortage of water, people, particularly the civilians, the soldiers probably are doing a little bit better, are drinking contaminated water. And that leads to sickness. And by the time the siege is broken with a relief fleet, the rate of sickness is accelerating. Thus, I mean, there's 7,000 troops inside at the beginning of the siege. By my, my calculations, by the end, there are 4,300 still alive. Now, that doesn't seem like, that seems like a lot, I suppose, by our standards. But by the standards of contemporary sieges, that's not huge mortality. 7,000 down to just over 4,000 in how many months? Three months? Yeah, over, over three months. But the rate of sickness was accelerating. Thus, 25th of July, 4,892. 28th July, 4,300. The rate, rate was getting worse. So yes, sickness is a problem in Derry rather than hunger. Well, I was going to ask you, Porik, as a, a former military man yourself, when you look through a lot of these sieges, is there any particularly incompetent actions by military commanders that you're reading about and you're thinking, what were they thinking? Okay, God, I love that moment. All right, yeah, the psychology of military incompetence. My own military experience many years ago, I was in the artillery, so I suppose one does, one does think about sieges. Golly, I hadn't been expecting that question, Carl, and I just, I need to think about it for a second. Yes, yes, um, I'd have to think about the, the, the 1649 siege of Drogheda. Uh, that's the one I was discussing. But there was another and far less well-known siege of Drogheda, December 1641, January, February and March 1642. That is a blockade by Irish insurgents and three attempted assaults on the on the town. So one of those assaults, to my mind, was an egregiously piece of incompetence. Uh, why? Because somebody, some kindly townspeople had made a hole in the wall for the insurgents. So they're sent in, the guys sneak in through the wall and uh, they're lucky, or not lucky, they've done the the night, they know that the garrison has been celebrating that particular night, so the garrison, the troops are all, the English troops are all, what's the word, they're all drunk, they're all asleep uh, with, with drink taken. So they're in this town, nearly all, the, the, the very few, very few soldiers are awake and sober, they've emerged into it, and they seem to emerge on the street and then nobody they don't really know what are they supposed to do next you know what i mean so obviously the, nobody told him go 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 and open up the wall the doors or the gates and let in everybody else instead of which they the shout clan Porrick or the, the rallying cry and they wake everybody up and then they the soldiers wake up they get over their drink and come out and chase them out through, through the hole in the wall there's a lot of casualties inflicted on the on the attackers and really, you got to wonder, had anybody given them instructions as to what to do? A little map saying, when you go through the wall, turn left, turn right, and go to the gate, or whatever. 
I'm sure if I taught her long and hard uh, about it, there would be other even more egregious ones. But that one always sticks in my mind. And I suppose the, the corollary or the opposite is um, what, what's the best siege from a technical point of view in Ireland in the, that period? Oh, I think my favourite in that sense is it's a little it's a little doozy is the siege of Duncannon in February, March, January, February, March of 1645. That is a siege. Duncannon is a fort in Waterford Harbour. It's dominates almost completely the harbour. So if you can imagine the Confederate Catholics control maybe two thirds of Ireland. But their enemies who owe allegiance to the English Parliament control Duncannon Fort, which means that the very important ports, Waterford and Ross in particular, they have great difficulty in, in, in their trade. So eventually the Confederate Catholics under a man called Preston, Thomas Preston, they lay siege to it. And it's a perfect example of, albeit a small scale siege, Duncanon, it's on a promontory, it's got a landward side, it's got bastions, it's got very thick defences, it's got lots of guns, and Preston uses the entire panoply of the modern siege. Uh, he uses sapping, he uses parallels, in other words, approach trenches and trenches going across joining them, which I, to my mind is the first time anybody ever did that. That's usually associated with Vauban. So he's quite innovative in that sense. His gunners are very good. They're able to knock out the uh, parliamentary shipping in the, in the uh, that's trying to relieve the town. They're able to they use mortars. Again, the first time I think mortars are used. Uh, these are high range, not high range, but high angle fire dropping bombs over walls and into a fortified place. Uh, so they use mortars, they use um, saps, parallels, very accurate gunnery, and they suffer relatively like casualties. I and mean, we're talking about a dozen to 20 men killed during that process. So it's very economical as we on time, on lives, and technically very innovative. Now, having said that about Thomas Preston, he, he, he did a very good siege. He was egregiously incompetent battlefield commander. He would do things that you couldn't believe, putting cavalry into narrow little borings, putting the wrong formations in the wrong place. Every time he ran a battle, he made a complete dog's dinner of it. Yeah, Dung Dungan's Hill would be there. Uh, well, Dung we, we didn't go out. Dungan's Hill, Timahoe, Ross, um, you, know, you, you, you could go on. you got to wonder, uh, you, that's that's another one. I mean, was anybody keeping an eye on this guy and saying, right, what's going to happen there? But in any event, you asked me about a siege. Preston's siege of Duncanon was absolutely spot on. Boric, it strikes me as, as odd that in this whole century of blood and sieges in, in Ireland, the 17th century, that Dublin, the capital, isn't really besieged at all. Yeah, the nearest we get to a siege of Dublin is in November 1646, a joint army of Owen O'Neill's Ulster Army and Thomas Preston's Leinster Army. They advance separately. One camps at Leakslip, the other camps at, I think, near, near Newcastle and County Kildare. Between camp followers and, and troops, 20,000 people. That's a big operation, but they don't go any closer to Dublin than that. Then you have the siege of Dublin by Ormond in 1649. So Dublin is closely besieged there. And what goes wrong for Ormond? 
the problem with taking Dublin is that it's a it's a town on a river. This is a common problem in the siege. So you then have to split your army. And if you can imagine Dublin, aside from the, the bridge over Dublin, what's the next crossing point if you go upriver from Dublin? What's the next crossing point you could you, you could you could reliably send troops across? I'm not asking this as a as a sort of a, a rhetorical question. I'm not I'm not hundred percent sure myself, but I think it would be maybe league slip. Would I be right? At that time, probably, possibly, um, like the Kilmainham would be a common crossing point, I suppose. I don't know it was Kilmainham. Kilmainham had mills, so there was a good flow of water there. So I'm not sure that, maybe maybe it was that far. But Ch Ch Chapel is it, possibly. I don't, I'm not sure, though. Yeah, I'm not sure myself, but certainly a crossing point is well up, which means that, let's say you have the parliamentarians of 10,000 men under Jones inside in, in, in the city. Then... Ormond would need 10,000 men on each side of the city just to have equal numbers, if you follow what I'm saying. So in any event, Ormond decided on his preparations for an attack and he captured a place called, his troops captured a place called Bagot Rat, which is on modern day Bagot Street, which would have been outside the city walls in those days. And having done that in night operation, he went back to have his breakfast and go and catch up on his beauty sleep. And as he slept, his camp was overrun by Jones's parliamentarians. So the Battle of Rat Mines is, in fact, associated with the Siege of Dublin. So, in fact, there are two sieges, one, or one almost siege and one on, in 1649 that was a natural siege. Now, the Jacobites, before and after the Boyne, don't seem to have considered defending Dublin. Why? Because for them, defending Dublin, the walls of Dublin, as one of them put it, is, is the River Boyne. So they decide they're going to defend Dublin on the River Boyne. It's a, it's a lot of a far out defence that there's no point in defending it closer because Dublin at that stage is not, its walls are ruinous and such is the scale of urban development. Most of the town is in fact outside the walls. So it is an open and to a great extent indefensible city. I mean, yeah, Rathmines is just up the road from where I'm, I'm speaking from now, Porik, and uh, you know, people can never believe when they, when you tell them there was a battle of Rathmines. Moving uh, on. Rathmines is where, where Ormond had his camp. That's why we call it, uh, it's the Battle of Rathmines when the camp was overrun. So I always find it strange to imagine that Bagot Rat or Bagot Street, uh, and you, you, you could you read about early in the 1640s, the O'Burns and the O'Tools raiding, raiding from County Wicklow, taking cattle from, from near Bagot Rat. So li literally within a stone's throw almost of Dublin Castle, um, the frontier was right there, that close to Dublin. Moving on, I want to kind of cl close out the, the chronology. I mean, after the Limerick surrenders to uh, the Williamites in 1691, that is really the last great siege in Irish history, isn't it? It is. It is it, because the, the age of siege work has, has finished. And I suppose in the siege, as I mentioned, one I hadn't mentioned, and it is kind of sui generis. And given I'm originally an Athlone man myself, and I suppose to my mind, the biggest siege of all in terms of expenditure. Earlier that year, the crossing of the Shannon, Ockram, and then the, the second siege of Limerick, at Lone in June 1691, is a perfect example of the Dutch method of 
attack of siege. The Dutch and to a lesser extent the English lay a huge emphasis on blitzkrieg as it were, on firepower. And they use an inordinate amount of firepower and in the case of Athlone, given the small size of the Connacht side of the town, that sustains over 10 days 12,000 shot, 600 bombs, any amount of stones, which if you knew the, the small size of the, the, the footprint of that side of town, is a very intense bombardment. So that, and ultimately, the Williamites win because in Ginkle in charge of wins because he's able to force the Irish not to occupy that space. They have to pull back most of the troops, bearing a, a skeleton crew near the river, which means that he can push his people across the river by a nearby ford. Now, that and the second siege of Limerick, which was not by any means a walkover. There was a great deal. Ginkle attacks the English town. He fails. He attacks the Irish town. He fails. He is coming round by County Clare and there's a battle at Toman Bridge and he thinks he's failed. He thinks that's it. He writes to the he writes to Dublin saying we're going to be here for another winter boys and then the Irish come out and say we'd like to talk about talks and that's the end of the of the war. I can't think of anything that happens after Limerick 1691 that's remotely like the kind of siege that we're talking about. Yeah, like there's no sieges in 1798 to speak of. Uh, no, 1798, you have the attempted capture of New Ross. They assault it, they take the gates, the walls, they don't manage to take the main square, which has got which is covered by artillery. And to that extent, I suppose that's not a sea, it's more like an assault. There's nothing prolonged about it, but it's certainly a contested action in a built up area. So it's pretty analogous, I suppose, to a siege. But isn't that pretty much it, really, for, uh, for, from 1798 and thereafter? Yeah, as far as I can as I can think, I mean, you know, the the the, the city and the town in the 18th century becomes something else. I think it's fair to say, isn't it? I mean, it's not a fortified settlement anymore. It's something else. Well, all of the those walls that I'm talking about are overtaken by corporations try and keep the walls going. Remember, in the 18th century, it was the constant fear of a French descent with the wild geese, with a Jacobite, Irish Jacobite army transporting the French Navy, transporting Irish troops to a landing in Munster or Connacht. So the Munster, Limerick, Galway particularly, tried to keep their walls intact throughout the 18th century. Well, certainly by, after Culloden, after the 1740s, it becomes more and more of a wasted effort over Nashka. They don't keep up the, the walls. So the walls are gradually built up against, holes are made in them. They're, they, they, become, they become degraded. And the, the cities expand beyond that belt of fortifications. So the walls lose their, lose their relevance. And in most cases, they don't survive there's only fragments survive into the 19th and even fewer fragments into the 20th century. Um, well, how many how many fragments survive of Dublin's walls? No, uh, there's one fragment really intact on Cook Street. Uh, that's, that's it. That's what I was thinking. No, that was that's the only one I can I, I I can think of. And in the case of Limerick, around St John's John's Hospital, the, the Irish town, oddly enough, where all the fighting happened, the walls around on either side of that breach are actually still 
quite intact. And you can see the gate, St. John's Gate. I think this is so cool. You can stand outside and look at St. John's Gate and you can still see the holes and this, uh, where they where the cannon the cannonballs must have hit the outer gate so that's kind of cool you see you see that uh, Galway would have had or should have had certainly into the 1960s it had one of its major bastions uh, Lions Tower bastion enormously impressive very solid looking thing but what survived Coote and Cromwell did not survive the rapacity of the Galway builder of which we need to say no more yeah, I mean, I lived in Galway for a little while, and what is fascinating that there's actually a section of City Wall preserved in a shopping centre, though, which had been underground, I think. I wonder about the... I'm open to correction. I wonder how accurate was that reconstruction of that wall there. But certainly the wall is reconstructed on the basis... If you look at the, the before... The, the wall as it was and the wall as it's reconstructed i think it's more it's rougher looking um the, the the stone doesn't fit as closely together but yes it was an imaginative way of presenting and uh, representing uh the walls and more's the pity that if you like the one the others the others end of it on eglinton street um hadn't survived and nothing is left there of that now at all they didn't, they didn't even keep the stones or number the stones but then the same applies at Lone, just the smallest fragments, as I say, Limerick. Anybody who's interested in this has got to walk the circuit of Derry's walls and you get a feeling for a place that was fortified and that was attacked. Yeah, I was just going to say that. I, I happened to walk the walls of Derry once and of course they have um, a, a great significance in Derry for the apprentice boys and for people of, of a unionist persuasion, you know, with the idea of no surrender and so on, which dates back to the siege although i suspect that the commemorations might have started at a later date project did they and uh, the see yeah the, the famously the no surrender is the dates back to the, the siege itself when did the the apprentice boys i think are early 19th century but i i'm open to correction on that but certainly the walls themselves the geography you get a good sense of the geography of the siege you can walk around them how long would it you, you'd walk the entire circus in I think 10 minutes, 12 minutes. That's how small it is. But it's remarkably well preserved and the cannons are still mounted on it. And um, it makes it... The only equivalent I've seen, Berwick in England, has a similarly impressive... That's on the Anglo-Scottish border. That's the nearest I've come to seeing a complete circuit of intact and not reconstructed, not pretend, not cussied up, real fortifications. Yes, Pork, I was going to uh, ask you, can you think of any sieges in the modern era that sort of conform almost to what we're talking about, the 17th century Irish sieges? Well, well I suppose you'd have to say Siege of Leningrad. I mean, if you talk, would you, do you count the Second World War as modern? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. I, I think more so even in the, the more recent period as well, when we're looking at things like Syria and so on. Um, yeah, I mean, it seems that the siege has really made a made a comeback. Aleppo and Homs, that's right. Uh, modern those modern sieges are a function of the reluctance of armies to get sucked into street fighting. Um, they want to stand off and shell them, drop artillery on them, 
encourage civilians, drive out the civilian population. But the idea of going on a street by street, clearing out of these places um, is profoundly, it's very unattractive for, for armies to take heavy casualties. And a lot of the time, these sieges last so long. It's not so much they could take them if they're prepared to take the casualties. In the 17th century siege, William, when he's attacking Limerick, is prepared for as he was going to have a second go, even though he'd lost one and a half thousand men, he was going to go at it again. But the weather turned and he was running low on, on, on cannon shot. In the in those those sieges you're talking about in the Syrian civil war, I think the the reluctance of the Syrian of Assad's people to take a tremendous to, to take heavy casualties in getting involved is the main reason for the main explanation for the, the length the duration of these sieges. What do you think? I'm not, I'm not, I wouldn't. I wouldn't swear to it now, but that's my own impression. I think we see as well that you don't have the the seasonal nature to the sieges as well that you would have had in the early modern period. They're, they're sort of relentless. Well, again, um, usually a siege ends in winter, November, October, November, because the attackers cannot. It's very difficult for them to stay encamped in the open uh, during winter they're going to get resupply is going to be difficult setting up their guns um in a quagmire is going is more difficult but it happens you do get year-round sieges i mean as i said that example the spanish siege of ostend that goes on summer and winter but it they, they pay a price so but that's that's a commonplace of I mean, modern warfare is so much more intense in the sense that it's not only is the seasonal aspect, but the diurnal aspect is taken out of it. If you could imagine early modern warfare, everything stops when it gets dark. Nearly everything stops when it gets dark. Any attempt to do military operations after dark, usually a disaster. Whereas nowadays you've got the 24-hour battlefield. You have troops. The biggest enemy is lack of sleep. They're, they're, they kept going. But, and this is true right back to the Second World War, where, um, and, and particularly now with night vision equipment and various other infrared imaging and various other ways of fight, of literally you can actually fight at night in a way that just wouldn't have been possible in those days. I think we leave it there. So, Patrick, thanks very much for coming on the show. My pleasure, and thank you, Carl. Thank you very much, Porrick. And that was Porrick Lennon from the National University of Ireland, Galway. If you'd like to listen to this or previous episodes of the show, please go to our website, irishhistoryshow.ie. You can follow us on Twitter, at irishhistorypod, or follow us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. My name is Carl Brennan, and on behalf of myself and my co-host, John Dorney, thank you very much for listening.